Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us once again. And a huge thank you to all of our lovely new Patreon supporters. Yeah, there's loads of you. Um, so we have Natalie Taylor, Darren Warren, Maureen Taylor, Tasha Sanders-Richardson, Anne Vitti, Bridget Curtin, Alison Jenkins and Catherine. Thank you so much, guys, for joining this exclusive club. And we are planning to have some new bonus material for you. As of next month, we're going to do a bonus episode every month and we're going to be keeping up with the Q&As because that seemed really popular. So um, watch this space and hopefully you'll be enjoying some bonus content soon. If you'd like to join these guys and also support us on Patreon as well, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. Is that right, Mark? That's correct. Yeah. I had to think myself. This week's episode is set against a backdrop of 1980s London. We're going to go back in time to 1988, and it was an eventful year. A year that saw Margaret Thatcher become the UK's longest serving Prime Minister. A year that saw the explosion of the Piper Alpha oil rig, a hundred or so miles off the coast of Aberdeen, a truly catastrophic incident which resulted in the deaths of 167 workers. And it was also a year that saw the explosion of Pan Am Flight 103 over the Scottish town of Lockerbie, killing all 259 on board, as well as a further 11 people on the ground. So when I say it was an eventful year, it really was. But for Arthur and Marguerite Lindsley, a married couple from Bromley in South East London, it was an eventful year for a very different reason. In March 1988, their beloved daughter Deborah, or Debbie as she was more commonly known, was brutally murdered in a frenzied attack on a packed train bound for London. 1988 was shaping up to be a great year for Debbie. Aged just 26, she had her whole life ahead of her. She was attractive and ambitious, and she was making waves in her career in the hospitality industry. Born and raised in Bromley, Debbie had recently made the move to Scotland in the hope of further advancing her career. She was working at one of Sheraton's landmark hotels in the capital city of Edinburgh. Reports have subsequently described her as a receptionist, head receptionist, deputy hotel manager and hotel manager. So I'm not exactly sure what she did there, but she was doing well and she certainly wasn't afraid to move around for the sake of her career. Debbie had settled into life in Scotland and she had a boyfriend and a vibrant social life there. She regularly travelled back to Bromley to visit her parents and also her brother Gordon, to whom she was very close. She shared a flat with a female friend in Edinburgh and without the responsibilities of children or a serious relationship, Debbie was having the time of her life. She sounds like a really cool girl, Zaj. Sounds like she's having a great time. I think so. And I think for 1988, when, you know, there were probably still a lot of kind of housewife type people about, women didn't work as commonly as they do now. I hope that doesn't sound sexist, but that's the way it was. Um, She was really driven, really career focused. And and I don't think that was uh, the norm back then for a woman of 26. Do you think so, though? 88? I don't feel like that was that long ago. If I think about my mum, because that was only just, so I was born in 89. So... And my mum had a job. Like, I don't know. I think I disagree with you a little bit. 
on that. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I, th- I do think it's 32 years ago. I think we've moved on a lot. Um, but it doesn't sound like that long ago, but it was. Yeah, that's so true. So I don't know. I might be wrong. I just, I, I don't think it was as normal as it is now for a woman to be, uh, you know, totally focused on a career at the yeah. age of 26. Yeah, and actually maybe 26 back then perhaps was a little bit older than you'd expect not to have like a serious relationship as well. I think nowadays it's not at all, but potentially. Yeah. So March 1988 saw Debbie travel back home to visit her family on two separate occasions. She didn't usually visit them this often, but then this was an exciting time in the Lindsley household. Gordon, Debbie's brother, was due to be married in early April and Debbie was to be a bridesmaid. The wedding preparations required Debbie to travel back home in early March for a dress fitting. She travelled down by train as she always did. Short hop commercial flights were in their infancy in 1988 and train was by far the cheapest way to travel the 400 miles or so from Edinburgh to London. During Debbie's trip home in early March, she enjoyed catching up with friends and family but this was only a short trip, a whirlwind. She didn't get to spend as much time with her parents, but she didn't feel too sad as she headed back up to Edinburgh. She knew she would be back later in the month when she was due to attend a hotel management course in nearby Hertfordshire. She'd decided to book some annual leave so that she could stay with her parents for a few days once the course had finished. And she was looking forward to revelling in the shared sense of excitement at Gordon's imminent wedding. So, a couple of weeks later, Debbie was heading south again, first to Hertfordshire and then on to her parents for a few days. The hotel management course was over in the blink of an eye. Debbie had met some interesting people there and had even been offered a job by the manager of the Sherlock Holmes Hotel in London. And Debbie was keen. She loved Edinburgh, but it was never going to be a permanent home for her. It was too far away from her family and with Gordon due to marry, Debbie knew it wouldn't be long before she would become an auntie and she didn't want to miss out on that. And besides, her parents were getting older and she knew they wouldn't be around forever. She wanted to spend time with them and to be there to support them in their retirement. The prospect of working closer to home was tempting and Debbie knew she had to explore this further. But first, she wanted to enjoy the creature comforts that come with being in the family home for a few days. After her course finished, Debbie spent the weekend shopping with her mum, who was a fraud investigator for the Department of Social Security. When Monday rolled round, she enjoyed spending time with her dad, who was by now retired. Debbie lazed around the house, watching the Australian soap opera Neighbours, and she also visited her brother and his fiancée. There was an air of anticipation in the Lindsley household. Debbie's mum was particularly excited at the prospect of her son's wedding the excuse to buy a new outfit and, of course, she was looking forward to seeing Debbie in her beautiful bridesmaid's dress. So, when the time came for Debbie to leave for Edinburgh on Wednesday the 23rd of March, they were all sad to see her go. Gordon worked around the corner from the former family home and would often visit during his lunch hour. And this day was no exception. He wouldn't see his sister now until the wedding, so he wanted to say a proper goodbye to her before she left. When he arrived at the house, Debbie was watching Neighbours. She was due to get the 216 Orpington to London train from nearby Petswood Station and Gordon offered to give her a lift, which she gladly accepted. 
Throwing her luggage into Gordon's red Ford Capri, the pair made for the train station. Debbie had made a special effort with her appearance that fateful Wednesday. She was wearing a blue skirt, blue jumper and a smart black leather jacket. And she'd taken extra care to style her wavy shoulder length hair too. She looked every inch the career woman. And this was precisely the look Debbie had wanted to achieve. Upon arriving at Victoria in central London, she was intending on making her way to the Sherlock Holmes Hotel on Baker Street to discuss that job offer. But fate had other plans in store for Debbie that day. Within the hour, she would be dead. What happens next is largely based on eyewitness accounts and some details are a bit sketchy. We will never truly know what happened after Debbie boarded that train at Petswood Station for what should have been a 30-minute journey. But I've examined details from the inquest into Debbie's murder and what follows is as close to the truth as we will get. So I'm now going to take you there in real time. I find this so fascinating because I know the case very vaguely, but not very well. And I just... I've always been under the assumption that there's not really much information at all. So it's really interesting to me that you've been able to look at things like her inquest into her murder. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, there, there really wasn't an awful lot of information into this one. I'd not heard of it before, um, but it's been like it's been a, it's been one of those cases that's taken the most amount of time to research and to write the script. Weirdly, and I've I've really sort of immersed myself in this over the last few days, and I don't really feel that's done me any good because it's such a tough time at the moment anyway. And I don't know. I've kind of lived and breathed this for for several days, so um, I'll be glad when I can put it to bed. But it's nice equally that we can remember Debbie and and bring her character back to life. Yeah, I think you've definitely done that already so far with describing her family life. I'm, you know, I feel really horrible that I know that something's going to happen to her because it just sounds so idyllic and the family having all this wonderful time together. Yeah, and it was an exciting time for them. You know, Gordon was due to be married. Debbie was going to be bridesmaid. Her mum was probably looking forward to retirement. So, um, yeah, it was a, a really sad time, but lots going on in that family. And I probably will give a warning now because what follows is quite brutal and bloody. And there are some really specific descriptions of the violence that was inflicted upon Debbie. And I don't know exactly what order that was inflicted upon her, but um, I've taken as much as I can from from what's out there. So it's just after 2pm. It's a miserable day in South East London. Wind and rain batter the car as Debbie and Gordon make their way to Petswood Station. Debbie has only just started to enjoy the warm air emanating from the noisy car heaters when Gordon pulls up outside the entrance to the station. This is it, they're here. Time to say goodbye. Debbie has a fleeting thought that the next time she sees her brother, he'll be getting married. It's official, they're both grown up now. Debbie kisses Gordon on the cheek as she exits the car. He doesn't hang around, it's a busy road and he's pulled up on double yellow lines. Debbie waves goodbye and turns to enter the station. It's fairly quiet, this is suburbia on a weekday afternoon. The mad rush will come in about three hours' time when the working day comes to an end. It's now 2.04. As Debbie waits in line at the ticket office, she becomes mesmerised by the sound of rain lashing down on the corrugated roof above her. 
She purchases her ticket and makes her way to the nearby kiosk where she buys a packet of cigarettes. As she waits at the platform for her train, Debbie plans what she will say to the manager of the Sherlock Holmes Hotel when she meets him in an hour's time. She reasons that she'll open the conversation by talking about her vast experience in hospitality. She's confident in her ability and knows this job is hers if she wants it. And the more she thinks about it, the more she realises that she does. As Debbie's mind drifts off into a daydream dominated by power suits and fax machines, as she pictures herself running the hotel, she is suddenly transported back to the present time when the loud speaker above her bellows out the imminent arrival of the 1416 train to London. Debbie can feel the train's impending arrival before she can see it. That gentle shake in the ground beneath her feet as the train approaches from a quarter of a mile away. She feels a little nervous now, one step closer to securing the job she has now set her heart on. When the train pulls up, Debbie steps towards the first compartment in the second carriage from the front. This is a smoking compartment, and Debbie is relishing the prospect of a couple of cigarettes on her journey into London. Do you know what? Sometimes you go a bit descriptive and you use your own artistic license and we tell you off, but so far I think this is beautiful Mark like you really like brought her to life for me yeah I spent a lot of time on this and it is um a lot of this has been taken from a crime watch reconstruction which was very detailed um so things like the cigarettes everything you know it's all accurate it's all correct So the train is quite old-fashioned, even for 1988 standards, and it consists of several carriages, each with various compartments. Some of the compartments are sealed off from other compartments and take up the whole width of the train, so the only way in or out is through the external doors on either side. These doors open directly onto the platform, so there's no corridor from which you can enter or exit the compartment. Once a train is moving, no one can get in or out, except obviously when the train stops at each station. As the train grinds to a halt in front of her, Debbie peers through the window of her chosen compartment. She can see a handful of passengers in there, but notes that it's roomy enough for her not to have to sit directly next to anyone. The compartment Debbie picks is small. It sits just six people on bench seats opposite each other, three on either side. Once sat down, the exterior doors are to the left and right. There are windows either side of the doors, giving passengers a view of the countryside or the cityscape, but that's it. There are no windows giving even the merest hint of what's going on in the other compartments or carriages. Once the train is moving, the compartment is all but closed off to the outside world. As Debbie clambers aboard, the controller blows his whistle, signalling the train's departure. She takes her seat and lights up a cigarette before taking a satisfying lung bucket full of nicotine. Debbie relishes the stimulating effect as the poison courses through her veins and reaches her brain. It's going to be a long day for Debbie. When she arrives in central London at approximately 2.50, she will have to get the tube to Baker Street, a half-hour journey, meet with the manager of the Sherlock Holmes Hotel, then make her way to Euston, where she will finally board her train to Edinburgh. A journey that will take six hours. There is no way she will be home before 11pm, and with work the next day, no chance of a lie-in in the morning. 
Debbie looks out of the window and takes in the suburban landscape. This is a journey she's taken many times and she knows it well. There will be ten stops before the train pulls into Victoria Station. The journey can only be described as very stop-start, pulling into small stations every three or four minutes. The longest gap between stations is towards the end of the journey, between Brixton and Victoria, a gap of about six minutes. Halfway through the train's route to Victoria, it pulls into Penge East Station. It's now 2.34. Debbie has 14 minutes left to live. At this point, a stocky man aged about 30 with dirty blonde hair hurriedly changes compartments near to where Debbie's compartment is. This is noticed by fellow travellers because he has to exit the train in order to then get back on it a bit further up the carriage. The train continues on its route, stopping at various stations along the way. Passengers get off and on as normal. Now, we really don't know what happens after the train leaves Brixton, its last stop before its final destination of Victoria, but it is clear that Debbie is now sat in her compartment with the man who is about to bring her life to a bloody and brutal end. It's just the two of them now. Perhaps this man has been sat in the compartment all along, biding his time until it's just him and Debbie all alone. Maybe Debbie didn't pay too much attention to him at first. Or maybe he entered her compartment partway through her journey, perhaps at Penge East, where witnesses saw the stocky man with dirty blonde hair change compartments. Perhaps this man entered Debbie's compartment and sat uncomfortably close to her, before striking up an awkward conversation. Perhaps Debbie rebuffed his advances or maybe he just exploded in a sudden fit of rage. We will probably never know. What we do know is that a few seconds after the train pulls out of Brixton Station, Debbie is savagely attacked. An 18-year-old French au pair named Hélène Jocelyne is sat in the compartment next to Debbie's. Although she can't see Debbie, she can hear her piercing, guttural screams. They stop for a few seconds before starting again. They are very, very loud. At first, Helene thinks it's just kids messing about, but she soon realises these are the screams of a terrified woman. Jesus, because she wouldn't be able to see anything. And like you said, the compartments you have to get off the train to get to the next one. You'd just be sat there hearing it all. Technically, she could have been sat just inches from Debbie. And like you say, she can hear everything, but she cannot see a thing. She isn't certain, but she thinks the woman is screaming for help, begging for her life to be saved. The screams go on for two full minutes. Helene sits in her compartment, glued to her seat. There is a pull cord just inches from where she is sat. If pulled, it will bring the train to a dead stop in about half a mile, and it will signal to the driver which compartment the cord was pulled in. The train would come to a messy stop and Debbie's life would possibly be saved. But Helene doesn't pull the cord. She sits there stunned, glued to her seat and unable to move. Imagine knowing that potentially you could have done something, but the whole flight or fight or just freeze thing just kicks in and you're just frozen. Christ, poor Helene. 
And don't forget, she's only 18 years old. You know, she's barely an adult herself. Um, I think is really tragic. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more um, later on in the episode about Helene. Um, but yeah, you know, what she would have gone through equally is, is terrible. Several other passengers in adjacent compartments also hear the screams, but they don't do anything either. They don't say anything to their fellow passengers. They just continue with their journey. So Debbie's attack has only just begun and her assailant is repeatedly stabbing her in the face, neck and chest. But Debbie isn't going down without a fight. She claws at her attacker's face and hands and with the blade coming at her from all directions she somehow manages to bat it away before it strikes her attacker in his hand resulting in a deep gash. Blood oozes from the wound and drips onto the carpet. Initially shocked by his injury, the man pauses briefly before continuing his frenzied attack on Debbie, this time with even more ferocity. Debbie shields her face and receives several deep cuts to both of her hands. But it's no good, she's been stabbed several times now and she's losing a lot of blood. She's in shock, dizzy and her senses are now starting to dull. It's like she has a starring role in her own silent movie. She can't hear anything, it's like she's not really there. But she's not lost all of her senses. She can smell blood. Her blood. And she can feel how warm it is as it soaks through her jumper, forcing it to cling tightly to her skin. As her attacker drives the knife deep into her chest, he pierces her heart. When he pulls the knife out, blood spurts from the gaping wound and splashes him. Debbie is still sat on the bonquette, but she is slumped, almost doubled over on herself now. She lets out one last gasp of air. She's dead now. The attack is over. Debbie's assailant gets up off the floor and looks at the scene of devastation before him. There is blood everywhere. Debbie's blood mostly, but also some of his from that deep cut in his hand. Debbie is sat in a pool of her own blood. She is still bleeding and it's steadily trickling onto the dirty carpet of the carriage compartment. Despite the train's rapid movement, everything appears so still now. The engines thunder and the wind howls, but to Debbie's attacker everything is silent. He replays the scenes of the attack in his mind and only snaps back into consciousness when the train changes speed and breaks heavily as it pulls into Victoria Station. That is just horrific. That is so savage and frenzied and brutal. I've had to, um, you know, I hope people don't mind, but I've had to use some... uh, kind of imagination i suppose to for the purposes of telling that story but it's all correct in terms of uh, what happened in the the scene of that crime and how it would have looked so um i hope nobody takes offense and that is most likely how it played out based on everything i've read but obviously we we don't know what happened um exactly and at what times um so you know for the purposes of the narrative i've had to kind of use a a tiny bit of dramatic license i don't think that anybody could be offended though i think it's it's really telling the story of of what probably happened and i think that's very fair to do yeah victoria station is bustling today ordinarily a quarter of a million people would pass through the station in a single day but today it's worse 
England are due to play a friendly against Holland tonight and 70,000 spectators are already arriving in the capital city, ready to sink a few pints before making their way north to Wembley Stadium. As the train grinds to a full halt on Platform 2, Debbie's attacker makes for the door and rushes away, merging into the vast crowds. In a couple of seconds he's gone and he's never heard of again. Or is he? Hold that thought. Oh, dramatic. Debbie's body is discovered by Ron Lacey, one of the station porters, at 2.50pm, just two minutes after the train has pulled into Victoria. Ron is traumatised, but somehow he manages to call the police. The track is closed off as a team of expert forensic analysts devour the crime scene. Christ, can you imagine you're just going along checking that there's, you know, no luggage left or something and you come across a scene like that? Yeah, you'd never expect to find anything like that. And actually, Ron was so traumatised that he never worked at Victoria Station again. Debbie's body was found fully clothed. There was no sign of a sexual assault or even an attempted sexual assault. Her purse was still in a bag, there was even a £5 note in there. It's clear the motive wasn't robbery. Over the following days, the train compartment was taken apart piece by piece, but there was no sign of a murder weapon. Perhaps Debbie's attacker had thrown it into the Thames as the train headed towards Victoria in its final few seconds. Officers noted the defensive wounds to Debbie's hands. It was obvious that she had put up a prolonged fight. Do you know what as well? Fair play to her. She impresses me. She really did like fight for her life. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, And I'll, I'll touch a bit maybe on that towards the end as well, because I think that's quite important that she put up a fight and it maybe stopped something happening that that would have ordinarily happened before she was killed or it might even be the reason why she was killed. So we will come on to that in a bit more detail. When 50 of the 70 passengers were later traced, only a handful of people claimed to have seen or heard anything. The French au pair, Hélène Jocelyn, initially attempted to put the incident to the back of her mind. Maybe she'd been right first time, maybe it was just kids messing about and her imagination had taken over. However, when she heard about the murder the next day, any doubt she had were cast from her mind and she immediately contacted the police. She described seeing a large man in his 40s with collar-length red hair walking away from the direction of Debbie's compartment when the train had pulled into Victoria. She told officers she'd tried to follow the man but she'd soon lost him in the crowd. She described him as having a pronounced limp. Was this Debbie's killer? Was the man limping because Debbie had somehow managed to injure him in the leg during her attack? Another potential witness was traced and described seeing that man change compartments at Penge East Station. Was this Debbie's killer? Had this man seen Debbie get on at Petswood Station and then seen her fellow passengers disembark at Penge East? Had he seized the opportunity to dive into her compartment knowing she would be all alone, biding his time until after the train had pulled away from Brixton when he knew he would have a clear six minutes in which to carry out his attack. That just seems quite mental though that you would give yourself such a narrow window if you're planning something and the chance that you swap compartments and you didn't realise there was already someone in there and now there's two people in there. I, I find that really hard to believe that somebody would be planning this in this way. 
I'm not convinced that was him. So I'm not convinced the man that changed carriages at Pengeast is the man that killed Debbie. Unless it was, but it was still not planned maybe. But then why would you change carriages in such a way? Mm, Really interesting though. So with just hazy witness statements to go on, the police struggled to pursue any credible lines of inquiry. They quickly ruled out those closest to Debbie, but with no murder weapon, no motive, no CCTV or credible witnesses, this was proving to be a very difficult case to crack. Consequently, just three weeks after Debbie's murder, they turned to the BBC show Crime Watch to appeal for information. A female police officer took part in a reconstruction exactly one week after Debbie's murder. The officer bared a striking resemblance to Debbie and she dressed in similar clothes as she retraced Debbie's steps all the way from her arrival at Petswood Station to the time she boarded the train. People are creatures of habit and often get the same trains at the same times on the same days each week. Would anyone remember seeing Debbie that previous Wednesday? Perhaps they noticed someone acting suspiciously or following her into her compartment. Unfortunately, the appeal yielded no results. No one recalled seeing Debbie at all that day. She had seamlessly blended into the crowds, just another commuter in suburban London on a random Wednesday afternoon in March. Nothing significant or noticeable about that. Police ascertained that Debbie had been killed with a kitchen knife which had a 5 to 7.5 inch blade. Additionally, they established that some of the perpetrator's blood had been left at the scene. But DNA science was pretty much non-existent in 1988, and the National DNA Database wasn't created until 1997. Still, they knew the assailant had likely been injured, and when this information was released to the media, two witnesses did come forward. One described seeing a man with a cut face walking away from platform two about ten minutes after the train had pulled into Victoria. The other witness described seeing a man cleaning a cut on his head in the toilets at the station. Artists' impressions were created of these two men and also of the man seen by French au pair Hélène Jocelyne and of the man who changed carriages at Pengeast, but no credible lines of inquiry presented themselves. It appeared to be a motiveless murder committed by a complete stranger. And I find it crazy that he must surely have been absolutely covered in blood. I thought that. How has nobody seen someone covered in blood? Like, what the hell? All I could think was um, maybe he sort of took a jacket off and carried it in his hand, later discarding it, or he turned his jacket inside out if it wasn't completely drenched with blood. Yeah, that's Um, true. Or it's just, you know, it's a busy train station. It's hugely busy. It's very crowded. He just kind of stormed through, rushed through, and and nobody had even time to look at him. I just think if you're seeing someone cleaning a cut... You've noticed that much. And then, so this person that you've seen cleaning a cut, would he not? But then I think what you said, actually, if you're wearing a coat or an over jacket or something, um, once you take that off, your clothes are going to be, maybe your shoes might be splashed, but you might be okay then. Yeah. And if you think about the random stuff that would take place in any given day at Victoria Station, every day there's probably somebody cleaning a cut in the Yeah, or covered in blood, to be honest. (laughs) Or covered in blood, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, don't forget there were thousands of football fans descending on the capital city and they, you know, there might have been people that had been there since 11 o'clock in the morning drinking and police did say that some people could have been getting into kind of fights and that was totally normal. So these people with cuts to their faces and head could have just been random football fans that had got into a bit of a scrap. Yeah. So the case was rested for a number of years and re-examined in 2002 by a cold case team. They'd managed to obtain a partial DNA profile of Debbie's attacker and they hoped to run this through the DNA database in the hope of finding a familial match. So I think that was kind of new science in the early 2000s. They would have already run that sample through the DNA database, probably in 97, but it it was not a match to the 6 million profiles held on there. But when familial DNA science was kind of discovered in, in the early noughties, they then ran it through once again. But unfortunately, nothing came from that. There were no matches, so they hit a brick wall once again. Do you know in this country whether if you're charged with a crime you have to give your DNA? I know in America you do, but is that the case here? I think you do now. Yeah, I think it goes on that database. So by that time, probably then the other, um, the attacker hadn't clearly, you know, gone on to do something else at that point, perhaps? Well, we'll come on to it because... Yeah, there's an interesting theory around it, really. Um, So before we get there, Debbie's family did continue to appeal for information on the anniversaries that followed. But sadly, Debbie's killer was never caught, at least not for her murder. So um, as I said, the case is still unsolved to this day. um, But there is an awful lot of chatter out there. So kind of what I would call informal chatter. So people commenting underneath videos on YouTube about this crime, um, but also formal chatter. So people in the know that a man called Robert Napper was actually responsible for Debbie's murder. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So Napper was found guilty at the Old Bailey in 1995 of the murders of Samantha Bissett and her four-year-old daughter, Jasmine. And he was subsequently found guilty of the 1992 manslaughter of Rachel Nickell, which happened on Wimbledon Common, which is a really famous case. Yeah. Um, these attacks were really violent and they were um, generally sexually motivated, which obviously Debbie's, the police said, was not. And although Debbie's attack and murder was violent, it wasn't as violent as, uh, for example, Rachel Nickell's manslaughter. Uh, she was stabbed a total of 49 times. Debbie was only stabbed 11 times. Some of Napper's physical characteristics did match the eyewitness accounts. He was often scruffily dressed and he did have red hair, but other characteristics described by witnesses were not a match for Napper. So some witnesses recalled the man being of average height, so 5'8", 5'9", and Napper was 6'2", but I really think he probably was responsible for Debbie's murder. The height thing is always difficult because I have no idea how tall people are. Everyone seems tall to me. Yeah, it's so subjective. You might see him as average height, but then you might be taller than average. Yeah, absolutely. And also when you recollect something much later on, you know, how accurate is that recollection? Mm -hmm, Exactly. So my theory on this, and I am by no means an expert, is that Napa was responsible. And I think that I think Debbie's murder was essentially sexually motivated. I think Napa had got into that compartment, um, all the other passengers had left and he seized his opportunity to attempt rape. 
I think Debbie then fought hard and resisted and for whatever reason Napa was unable to commit rape against her um, he then finds himself trapped in what is essentially a locked room with the victim of a crime that he's just attempted to commit so what can he do you know he's got to shut her up in the nicest possible way so he decides to kill her and I think that's why the murder wasn't as violent as his other murders because it was more functional it was practical um, to bring her life to an end and ensure that he would get away with his crime. Yeah, I think I agree with you on that because when I'm thinking of you've got a six-minute window to um, murder somebody, that seems ridiculous as something premeditated, whereas a six-minute window when you know there's a lone female in a compartment to uh, rape her and then make a, a getaway to me seems like more of a logical thing that the person would think of I'm not saying that raping someone is logical whatsoever but in their mind potentially and then yeah she's fought hard and fought back so it's perhaps taken him by surprise if it is this napper or whoever it is yeah I think it really took him by surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, I think potentially the man Helen Jocelyn saw limping away from uh, a carriage. Um, I think it, that could have been him and he could have been perhaps stabbed in the leg and it maybe it was quite a bad wound that, uh, you know, meant that he wasn't able to carry out the attack that, that was his intention. Yeah, and I think as well, like potentially that could be why um, it wasn't as frenzied because it wasn't planned. It was just a shock to have to do that. Yeah. So Napa was known to be committing rapes in 1988 and he actually confessed that to his mother and he was also active in South East London. So the clues are there. Um, he was convicted in 1995 and that was obviously before the National DNA Database uh, was kind of implemented. So they didn't then retrospectively take DNA off criminals who were still in prison and add it to the database. So his uh, DNA wasn't on that database. Oh, okay. Wow. So if it is him, unless for some reason now DNA was taken, we wouldn't really know, would we? Correct. So legally, um, under all sorts of human rights laws, etc., they would not be allowed to uh, take a DNA sample from him unless they had other evidence that pointed towards him being the suspect in Debbie's murder. Um, other people have uh, said that it could have been Peter Tobin. Uh, he was a serial killer operating around the time of Debbie's murder. And he did travel a lot around the UK. But I just personally don't believe that he would have been on that train, a suburban train on a random Wednesday afternoon. And he didn't live in the southeast. He usually targeted teenage girls and he used multiple killing methods. So I just don't buy that it was him. But people have mentioned him, several people. And leading criminologist, friend of the show, as I like to say, Professor David Wilson, has said that at least two serial killers are usually active in the UK at any one time. So, you know, if you think we've got Peter Tobin active at this point and possibly Napa, you know, there probably weren't any other people going around killing people. So the odds are that it's it's probably is one of them, isn't it? I think as well, to kind of go back to Robert Napa a little bit, if... He is raping and he's admitted that. That's what his crime is at this moment and at this time. Um, to then escalate to the crimes that he was then committing in the 90s, there is al- almost a potential that this 
went wrong but then he got a bit of almost like a bloodlust and that's why he then exaggerated his crimes later and that's why it was 11 rather than what did you say like about 50 times that the other lady yeah. was stabbed um potentially this was almost like a catalyst for him getting worse I think um, it all kind of got a bit messy for me towards the end because I'd spent so much time on this case and writing it, um, but that you've made sense of it for me because I think you're probably right there. Um, you know, was this uh, just a, a standard rape that he was going to carry out like he'd probably done before and it went wrong? The woman put up a fight, he wasn't expecting it, he panicked and had to murder her and like you say, did he then develop an appetite for that? Um, if it was Napa, then yeah, he certainly did because he went on to kill uh, three more times yeah i think that could if it was napa that could be a really interesting um potential turning point for him in the escalation of his crimes um or something that just went wrong for him i think i do think you're right about that it's potentially a sexually motivated crime because i just still can't think that you would get on with the idea of wanting to attack somebody in a short space of time it just seems a bit too ridiculous obviously people in that mindset aren't exactly thinking sensibly but um and there's no robbery she still had that money in her purse yeah so and he must have taken a weapon with him so i think to take a knife to threaten someone like stay stay silent while this happens um as a warning that makes a lot of sense in my yeah. mind. I think, um, you know, the only other possibility, I think, is it was, um, you know, somebody with severe mental ill health who, you know, just happened to always carry a knife and just flipped out randomly killed her you know maybe it was somebody who then died a year later from a drug overdose and therefore never committed any further crimes and never found himself on the dna database for that reason who knows it's an interesting one so um you know our thoughts certainly are with debbie and her family her mother sadly passed away on new year's day in 2011 um debbie's brother gordon did go on to marry that woman but they've subsequently divorced and he's married again um i know that debbie's dad was alive as of last year so i hope he's still alive now um but you know really sad for them because they they absolutely have no closure on this and debbie really did at 26 have her whole life ahead of her so get in touch in all of the usual ways let us know your thoughts we're on facebook instagram and twitter or you can also email us at info at seeingredpodcast.co.uk yeah thank you so much for joining us again this week guys and don't forget to check out our sponsor stitch fix or have a look for us on patreon if you want to as well thank you very much mark because yeah this this has really brought debbie and her murder to life for me and it's really very chilling so thank you for that case mark so um we will see you next week guys bye bye